Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening, and welcome to Tri-State at the Plate. I'm your host, Andy Burdick, joined today by the ginger prince of baseball himself, Bob Finkbeiner, and we're also joined with a special guest appearance by our super <laughs> producer, Jason Ruggiero. Jason, it is great to have you back on the podcast, man. It's good to be here, and apparently the way to a warm reception is to be absent. Just, just go away for a long time. <laughs> Apparently, absence does make the heart grow fonder. That's what we've learned. In this tonight. case, I guess it does. <laughs> Red, how are you tonight, buddy? I am fantastic, and my heart is always fond of our super producer. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I will, I wow. will say, <laughs> I think I'm going to have to start taking over the super producer title, though. I do, I do a lot of I know. Things. I don't produce anything. <laughs> you <laughs> I you do. produce nice food. Yeah. A lot of produce. Yeah, produce, produce. That's true. But anyways, it's good to have the whole I gang think, back. We... I think actually that you had stopped calling me that, and since I've been gone so long, you fell back into that habit tonight. Because I think you actually had had kind of subconsciously stopped referring to me that way, and <laughs> you took over more of the producing. <laughs> I and think tonight that, you just didn't know what to say, so you were like, uh, super producer. Yeah, yeah, just got to fall back into that old routine. I did, uh, for a period of time, call you super producer in between his daddy duties. And that's true, but that would be you now. That, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very fitting title for me now, yeah, as I hear my son crying and not going to bed on the floor above us. <laughs> Mine's just running in circles above us. <laughs> there's, there's a slim chance you two will be discussing uh, the Cleveland Indians at length while I go upstairs and uh, put my son to bed. So if, if at any period of time during the podcast, Bob and Jason are just rambling and you're wondering why it's <laughs> rambling so long about the Indians, it's because I'm upstairs still. <laughs> you're giving away our secrets. That's, that's, yeah. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. All right. Well, let's get right into this because clearly we, two thirds of us have kids that are running around and crying and, and doing child things so uh let's talk before we get to the uh indians and the pirates let's talk a little bit about the the hall of fame boat because that always gives us something to discuss for a period of time at, at this time of year when there's not a whole lot going on in baseball now i suppose uh indians fans could refute that because there's quite a bit actually going on in cleveland but uh with the pirates there's certainly not a lot going on so let's let's talk about something that is going on which is something that that people are I suppose somewhat interested in, which is the Hall of Fame vote. Uh, the the Hall of Fame uh, vote took place this year, and we have three newest Hall of Fame plaque recipients. And those are first baseman, former first baseman of the Houston Astros, Jeff Bagwell. Uh, outfielder, probably most prominently, of the Montreal Expos, Tim Raines. And arguably the greatest catcher of all time. Certainly the greatest catcher that I've ever seen play baseball in my lifetime, Yvonne Rodriguez. So I'm just kind of curious. I want to hear your off-the-cuff, how we're feeling about the, the Hall of Fame vote. Or maybe, I don't know, should we preface everything with how we feel about the Hall of Fame before we talk about the vote? So I don't know. Red, what do you think about the, the Hall of Fame vote? Are you, are you generally like a big baseball Hall of Fame kind of guy? Do you think it should be a, a more exclusive club and it's, it's harder to get into? What, what are your thoughts about the Hall of Fame vote, first of all? You know... I think it's important that we let people know that the Hall of Fame vote, to my knowledge, was not influenced by any foreign entities. <laughs> That's good. Russia had not with that, hacked the, with, yeah. the Hall of Fame voting. With that, with that being said, though, uh, to me as a baseball fan or fanatic or lover of the game, I, I like the Hall of Fame, but to me it's not the end-all, the be-all. It's just a nice conversation starter and a constant never-ending debate. As to who should be in, who should be out, that's to me what it is—a conversation. Jason, thoughts? Hall of Fame, big Hall of Fame, small Hall of Fame? Don't care. Uh, unexcitedly, I'm kind of with Bob. It's like uh, curiosity to me, but not something I, like I see these people online who just like they're tracking the the. The tweets as they come in, the running tally of the Hall of Fame vote, and they're stressing out about it. And 
Tim Raines and holy cow and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, hmm, Tim Raines, good for him. Pudge, yeah, he was good. Bagwell, yeah, he hit a lot of home runs. Sounds good. <laughs> that that was enough for you. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that actually has made me mad in relation to the Hall of Fame in the last several years is when Kenny Lofton got kicked off the ballot, like, the first time. I'm not Amen. saying Kenny Lofton's a Hall of Famer, but, like, to not even make it past the first year, I thought was kind of disappointing. But that's really the only thing. Yeah, I, uh... ask me ask me next year when Tommy and Viz Keller on the ballot. <laughs> then then we're very passionate about the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I'm generally like a. I mean, I think the as long as it's statistically supported, you know, if you're holding this arbitrary standard of well, we're putting the 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 best of all time players in here. I mean, as long as you have the, you know, a reasonable leg to stand on with your argument, I'm more of a big hall kind of guy. Like to me, okay. So I guess I'll put it in this context. To me, Tim Raines was a first ballot hall of famer. I don't think Tim Raines should okay. wait until the, you know, the 10th year on the ballot to be in the hall of fame. Um, as someone who's experienced, so I've, I've been to, to Cooperstown twice. I've been to Cooperstown once with Bob and then, you know, once when I was younger. And I love the museum. I love the town. It's, uh, there's there's something almost electric about it when you, especially when you're a baseball fan and you go and visit there. But, yeah, I, I mean, I, I share the sentiment that I don't particularly care one way or the other who does get in or who's left out, other than I just feel like, Kind of like you guys, also in the sense that I guess I would become outspoken for someone like Tim Raines. You know how Jonah Carey kind of took on Tim Raines' uh, case for the Hall of Fame and made it his, like, flaming sword for the last three or four years. You know, like, I guess I kind of feel the same way about, you know, guys like Kenny Lofton. Those guys who are on the fringe where you're wondering, are they going to be in or out? Like, right now, to me, like, Mike Mussina's another pitcher where I look at Mike Mussina's career and I think, if, well, if you're going to put the best of the best in there. Mike Mussina belongs in there. Um, but it doesn't, I don't lose sleep over it, I guess, is kind of what I'm getting at. Do you know what's interesting, though? Is that <clears throat> Kenny Lofton compiled a 68.2 war, or sorry, win. Uh, yeah, war, as I meant to say. <laughs> the case in point this year, Tim Raines, who's now a Hall of Famer, a 69.1 war. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kenny Lofton I mean, is one of the most criminally underrated players. Oh, and I think, terrible. I think the, the case for Kenny Lofton being underrated is simply because who he played around. You know, and he he was a great defensive player um, who got on base, was fast, but didn't hit home runs in a home run era. You know what I mean? Like he had, I don't think he ever he never hit twenty home runs in a season, did he? Kenny Lofton? I I would be shocked if he did. Yeah, like he probably you know, he had like some twelve homer, fifteen homer seasons in there maybe, but and he played in an era where everybody was killing the ball. So, you yeah, know, you 15. look at his like what's that? Fifteen was his high. That was his high, yeah. So I don't know. I mean that would be a guy where I would look at him and say the fact that he's not on the ballot, like, that bothers me, I guess. Because to not acknowledge what he's done with his career is, I guess, kind of bothersome. When you're talking about, again, that arbitrary standard of what makes someone a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I mean, he's like the example of someone who is going to get penalized for playing in a dirty era. Right. And you know, Not to say unequivocally anything about him you know what i mean right but like his skill set is not the kind of skill set that plays up in an era where people are hitting 60 home runs right yeah i i definitely agree with that um and you know you're gonna have guys like that i guess i kind of understand to a degree you know tim Raines was almost that case where I think Tim Raines' biggest, the thing that held Tim Raines back, I guess, making the Hall of Fame for the longest was the fact that he was the second greatest leadoff hitter of his era. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if Ricky Henderson had not existed, we would talk about Tim Raines like we talk about Ricky Henderson. 
It just so happened Ricky Henderson and Tim Raines played at the exact same time. So now it's always, oh, yeah, Tim Raines. Yeah, he's kind of like uh, the second-best leadoff hitter behind Ricky Henderson. Well, and, I mean, isn't that probably the argument that's going to come out next year against Vizcal? Like, oh, yeah, the there was Ozzie Smith, and then there was Omar. Yeah. Because I see the comparisons already starting in some articles where people are comparing, like, their bat, you know, and it's like, well, if we want to cherry pick between the two of them, you know, oh, he was better here, he was better there, whatever. It was like, what, why does Vizquel get compared to Ozzy? Like you're saying, why does Reigns get compared to Henderson? Right. It's like they're all great players. Yeah, just a uh, just a product of poor timing for their particular skill sets, I suppose. But yeah, so I mean, it's interesting, I guess, in the sense that it's fun to talk about, and I guess I, I enjoy trying to find or trying to gauge the barometer of what makes a player a Hall of Fame player more as like mental gymnastics than anything else. But I don't put a whole lot of stock into it. Maybe that's also because I've never seen a Pittsburgh Pirate Hall of Fame induction ceremony during my lifetime also. I have zero connection to it. But, yeah, that's those are uh, my thoughts on the Hall of Fame. Anything else that we want to add before we move on to talk about some uh, real baseball that matters? No. Nah. Move on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I feel like we covered the Hall of Fame pretty uh, thoroughly. That's a good, solid ten minutes of Hall of Fame talk. All right, you guys ready to talk about some real baseball? Yeah, first. <laughs> that was, that was a, resu- a resounding yes there. <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, let's see what's going on in Cleveland. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Cleveland's off season a little uh, a little louder than most. So, Bob, why don't you uh, lead us off here? What's the big news coming out of Cleveland? Well, feel free to chime in whenever you need to, Jason. But um. Actually, the Indians' offseason was remarkably, well, made remarkably for those who really follow Tribe, but it was quiet. And then, all of a sudden, boom. <laughs> uh, if you had not heard this yet, the Indians signed first base in <laughs> DH Edwin Encarnacion for a three-year, possibly four-year contract for $60 million dollars. It has some very interesting breakdown of his numbers. Should I go through this now or later? Yeah, we should, we should break this down. I should also mention, by the way, if you are listening to this podcast, you probably are aware already that Edwin is going somewhere. <laughs> yeah. If you're not, I'll tell you right now, you're listening to the wrong podcast because uh, we're going to talk about all the baseball that happens in between when we record. So, yeah, let's hear uh, – I want to hear the specifics of Edwin's contract because he has one of the most unique contracts that I've seen – uh, in recent memory. So let's break break down his contract for us, Bob. Okay, his deal became official on January 5th of this year. He received a $5 million signing bonus, and then he'll have the following salaries per year. <laughs> this year, 2017, he'll earn $13 million. 2018, he'll earn $17 million. 2019, he'll earn $20 million. Then it becomes interesting. If the tribe declines the club option, he's guaranteed a $5 million buyout. Or if they exercise the option, he'll make $20 million more in 2020. He also has some unusual, at least from our experience, attendance bonuses, where he will make $150,000 each if the Indians can surpass 2 million, 2.15, 2.3, 2.5, 2.75 million in attendance, or he'll make 250000 for 3 million in attendance. That is the most. <laughs> so the question I have for both of you is: structured contract. What likelihood is it that the Indians fan base will surpass any of these attendance figures to trigger a bonus for Edwin? Well, what was what was the lowest bonus threshold? Two million. And last year they were at one. Last point... year they drew one point five nine million. In regular season. I think they'll pass that for sure. The reason I say that is they already sold, 
Well, just on the the day that he signed the contract, they sold like 200 season ticket packages. Right. And I think that they've been, you know, booming, so to speak, uh, in that regard since then. So I think they'll pass two million. Uh, I don't know about much more than that. As sad as that is to say, but I would I would expect them to pass two million, Andy. I, yeah, I'm so. <clears throat> I'd like to say we have our finger on the pulse of Cleveland Indians attendance, having attended you know multiple games a year for the last you know entirety of our lives basically, um, and I. I I think, you know, you notice at the beginning of the year, especially, like, at the beginning of last year, so you have this World Series contending team. Nobody was turning out at the beginning of the year. It's cold in Cleveland. Bob and I went to <laughs> opening day a few years back, and I have literally only been that cold outside of football games during the playoffs. Like, it was, it's awful. So no one wants to I go went outside. I day past year. It was the coldest opening day ever in Cleveland. Oh, God, man, it's, it's freezing. It's biting cold out there. So no one wants to go out in the cold. Um... But I think, like you said, you're going to get a bump from having been a World Series team last year. Um, you know, they average 19,000 fans a, a game um, last year at home. I, You know, like a, a team like Minnesota averaged 24,000 fans. And they were right at that – they were right at that 2 million threshold. They were 1.9 million. Uh, I mean, is it ridiculous to think that Cleveland can average 5,000 more fans a game for 81 games a year? I don't think that's a ridiculous number. Um, I mean, even to put it in context of the Pirates, you know, Pittsburgh and Cleveland are similar type cities with similar demographics. Pittsburgh averaged 28,000 fans a game last year, you know, 2.2 million. I mean, can Cleveland bump up to to be a middle-of-the-pack attendance team? Sure, I think it's possible. Um, yeah, I. So I mean, obviously, the better your team are, the better your team is in Cleveland. The more the city's going to support them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see them hit that two point three million dollar threshold. I mean, clearly, they think it's a very realistic uh, number in Edwin's camp because they agreed to it in the contract. So it's something that that he feels. I would assume fairly strongly about. Yeah. Now I, I said, and this is this is my idea. This is what I would do if I were Edwin. So you figure you're gonna get 150k for hitting two million fans, right? The easiest way to get to two million fans, bobblehead night. If you're Edwin, take fifty thousand dollars, have a, you know, ten thousand bobbleheads made, promote it, and then uh, on like a Wednesday when no one's showing up to the ballpark at the beginning of the season. Edwin Encarnacion bobblehead night. You'll sell the stadium out. That's, or, what I think, that's what I think I'd do if I'm Edwin. You can also add in some more Sugardale dollar hot dog days. Oh, we talk about this ad nauseum on this podcast, but <laughs> the Cleveland Indians are the most fan-friendly Major League Baseball team that I've that I've ever seen. I, they're a Major League stadium that has dollar hot dogs, guys. Like, that's ridiculous. It's usually like $8 to get a hot dog at PNC Park. Ridiculous. I mean, if your dollar dogs can't bring fans to the stadium, I don't know what else it's going to take. Well, do you want to hear Edwin's agent's rationale? Yeah. What do you say? So he's he's the one that threw it out there. Um, Antonetti didn't even know if they were allowed to do it. He had to call the commissioner's office, according to the plane dealer. And he threw it out there. And his rationale was that when he and the Blue Jays started their run, they were at 1.9 million, and now they're at 3.4. And he says, he's like, that's not all Edwin, but Edwin was a part of that. So if Edwin can do that here, he should get rewarded. It's <laughs> a very logical rationale. <laughs> that, you know what that sounds so it, like? That sounds like a teenage kid just bargaining with their parents about something. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> But you know what's interesting? It is interesting, right, that the Blue Jays were at 1.9 and now are at 3.4. Right. I mean, because I think we all have in our mind, we think of the Blue Jays, like the way the Blue Jays fans are in the playoffs the last few years, where it is not a place that you want to be if you're the, on the other team, right, because it's loud and 
Edwin's clubbing home runs and flipping his bat and, <laughs> and everything else. But it's interesting to see that, you know, not that long ago, they were in a similar uh, attendance area. I mean, 1.9, 1.5, I understand there's a big difference, you know, but getting close. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I mean, when yeah, when you just when you look at the sheer numbers, I mean, two million to me for a team coming off a World Series appearance seems way more than reasonable. I mean, I I think you're going to be looking at yeah, like that Pittsburgh territory for sure. But I also think too, like when I was looking, you know, not that long ago at his. Um, uh, baseball reference page, him being Edwin's. It's just like this. This is not even just a player slightly out of Cleveland's normal realm. <laughs> like this is the guy that I think it was a uh, either three or four of the last five years has gotten MVP votes. <laughs> you know, I mean, like this. This is and Bob, you can back me up on this, but this is like the guy that Cleveland fans never, ever, ever thought they were going to be able to sign. Well, so absolutely. if you don't come out to this team, I don't know what you're waiting for. Well, definitely. I mean, how many times have we, or probably a lot of Indians fans, you thought about the idea that Edwin might come to Progressive Field, Jacobs Field, but then you thought, ah, nah, there's no way we're going to put up the money to get Edwin to actually come. Right. And then... As his market sort of dissipated, I guess, to a degree, you could say, after he declined that, that extension offer from the, the Blue Jays. And then probably when they went out and signed Kendrick Morales so fast, you begin to wonder, well, maybe. Maybe yeah. there's a little bit of hope here. That's the one thing you don't want to give Cleveland fans is any hope. So they go, <laughs> go crazy with our ideas and dreams of like, man, we might actually win something. Yeah. No, I think it was interesting. It pretty quick, quickly it became clear that there weren't that many good landing spots for him. Right. The one that worried me the most, though, was Texas. I really thought Texas was going to be in play for Edwin. I thought so, too. And it's interesting because when you look at some of the articles that came out afterwards, one he basically, you know, Edwin thought that the team he was going to be a part of in Cleveland was really exciting. And he liked the fact that it was um, uh, similar, or I don't know if it's exactly the same, but a similar time zone to the Dominican and a, and a closer flight than out West. Like he got a good offer from Billy Bean, but his response was that Oakland to Dominican to the Dominican Republic was a really long flight. And the four hour time difference meant his son wouldn't be able to watch him on TV. Mm-hmm. which is just an example of like the things that as a fan you're not even thinking about, but this guy is thinking like, I can't, I don't want to be playing out West. My family won't ever be able to watch me. <laughs> but it's interesting because I thought the same as you. I was like worried about Texas and apparently Texas must not have put in that competitive of an offer because it doesn't seem like they were there at the end. Right. It seems like it was really the Indians and the athletics. I really thought with them losing Prince, you know, the retirement, right. there was a glaring need now that they could be filled with Edwin. My question also for you, as far as Edwin's deciding factor in this whole thing, how much of a role do you think the Blue Jays losing to the Indians and he get a chance to be around those guys and see how they play in the clubhouse ultimately help push them to the forefront? I think – I think it does make a difference because you have a you know a young team with the Indians essentially unproven, right? Right. And if you're Edwin, you want to go somewhere where you think you have a real shot to win because you're, you're getting older, you know. And this is your chance. This is your your time to shine that you've basically earned by you know chipping in over the last ten years and becoming a really good player. So I, I think that's true. You know, if the Indians lose to the Blue Jays or, you know, have a bit of a collapse of spirits, shall we say, against <laughs> the Blue Jays, 
you know, th- does he think like that's not a team I want to be on? You know what I mean? Right. But on the on the other hand, what actually happened? You know, does Edwin think like good night? They sent out some kid who'd pitched two games. <laughs> <laughs> who just is out there, you know, throwing junk at me for five innings, dip, duck, dodge, and dive all over the place. (laughs) And somehow these little rascals get out of there with a win. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine that that doesn't have an impression on you, you know, when, when you are like the Blue Jays, unfortunately have to play with the Red Sox and the Yankees and, and all those big boys in the East, so you kind of forget they've been good for quite a while. Oh, and, yeah. And I guess it would have to make an impression when the new kids on the block, you know, have a good showing. And he should feel comfortable in the clubhouse if you were to say as of today, what is the, you know, projected 25-man roster? It's conceivable that they would have, count Edwin, six guys from the Dominican. Yeah, I guess him and Carlos are friends, and Carlos had reached out to him and said, you know, you 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 love it here. That's our man, Carlos. You should you should come here. So they had the uh, the ever and uh, enthusiastic energizer bunny and Jose Ramirez. Oh my goodness. He's from the Dominican too, so I mean he fits in that crowd well. Yep. So. And- Sorry. Yeah, they have quite a contingent of Latin players on the team. So, so I guess we can move on a little bit. Um, they did the tribe did exercise options for uh, Tito that include 2019-2020 season, which is really good. On the same right. day, they also exercised the option of Carlos Santana for 12 million dollars, and he will be a free agent at the conclusion of the 2017 <laughs> season, as you mentioned. Santana has formed a nice friendship with Edwin. What do you think the chances are that Cleveland extends Carlos before he gets free agency? Well, I'll I'll say, I mean, my first thought when they signed Edwin was, well, there goes Carlos. Um, but now I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. But I think there's always the problem when you get this close. Right. There's that saying, basically, like once you get into that last year of a contract, it's almost impossible to negotiate with an extension with the player. Right. You know, they've been waiting their whole life, basically, to test the open market. And they're this close. They're probably not going to. But, you know, I think uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I'd have to say probably unlikely. What about you? I I lean more towards unlikely, largely do what you said, and him having already signed that six-year deal that covered 2012-2017. I think he's going to want to see what the market is out there. Yeah. What do you think, Andy? Aside from the fact that I just don't think it's a good roster fit uh, for Cleveland. You know, like he – Carlos is great for what he is, which is a guy that gets on base. Um, you know, with, with good power, but I mean, you know, now you have Edwin there. Do you really want to spend the money to have to try and figure out how you're going to work the DH, the first base time? Um, I actually, I think it kind of takes away some of the flexibility that Tito would like with his lineup when you're talking about spending money on Carlos like that. So I, I don't know. I, it, it seems like the inevitable free agency March to me. Is kind of what it feels like. Just my thoughts. Just that you know, I I haven't read anything that says Cleveland is wanting to go one way or the other. But that's what I would think. I I would I would assume that the signing of Edwin would mean Carlos's career in Cleveland is coming to a close. Well, <clears throat> I think we all tend to basically think the same way, and we have further proof, perhaps, or analysis when you look at the arbitration cases this year for the Cleveland Indians. You have. Brennan Geyer, who avoided arbitration by signing a two-year contract worth $5 million that includes a 2019 club option. And then the other guys that avoid arbitration for one-year deals include Cody Allen, 7.35 mil, 
Brian Shaw, 4.6. Lonnie Chisenhall, 4.3. Trevor Bauer, 3.55. Zach McAllister, 1.825. Denny Salazar, 3.4. And Dan Otero, 1.055 mil. So obviously these guys are coming through arbitration for the second, third time and are inching closer and closer to that dreaded free agency era. Can I tell you something Don't... about about Brandon Geyer and how amazing I think that signing is for Cleveland? I mean, I'm sure you guys are aware because you're Indians fans, but but our listeners might not be. Go take a look at Brandon Geyer's splits. <laughs> uh, Brandon Geyer is, if you let him face, <laughs> if you let him face lefties only, Brandon Geyer is like a, an all star. I mean, so 2016 versus lefties. Uh, he had 123, well, it's 152 plate appearances. He hit 333 across 152 plate appearances, six home runs, uh, 17 strikeouts to nine walks. Um, I mean, <laughs> you compare that to his 218 average in 193 plate appearances against righties, and man, Brandon Geyer is is looking like a, a great. He is like the prototypical Tito player. Like Tito's going to find situations for Brandon Geyer to be successful. Um, even if you take a look at his career splits, you know, if you want a, a much larger sample size, he has about a season's worth of career splits, 542 plate appearances against lefties, a 288 hitter career against lefties. Um, <laughs> I think Brandon Geyer is going to end up being a, a really solid signing for this club. And on that note, I agree, Andy, but, uh, interestingly, I saw today in the plane dealer that uh, Brandon Geyer is going to supposedly get some reps in center field come spring training. Yeah, and, you know, that's a, kind of another thing to consider also. I think, you know, he was playing primarily left field, I think, for the Rays. Um, but, you know, he's logged time in all three outfield positions. I mean, he's he's played left and center and right um, throughout his career. So, I <laughs> yeah. Brandon Geyers seems like a Tito guy, if you ask me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I agree. And all those other guys, Bob, not to move on too quick, but don't you think a lot of those other guys you named, uh, their time is probably coming to an end with the Indians? Uh, like Cody Allen, almost $8 million. Is this his last year of arbitration? No, he'll be ARB 3 in 2018. Whew. that'll <laughs> yeah. be a 11 12 million dollar contract probably uh you know and i understand like alan shaw like you know you're probably gonna hold on to those guys as long as they're under arb shaw i mean he he could fall apart at any moment so <laughs> and he just he's he's been used so much um and shaw would be a free agent after this year okay like you're not gonna sign brian shaw to an extension i wouldn't imagine um, you're not going to, unless Zach McAllister suddenly gets it together, I don't know how much money, more money you want to pay Zach McAllister. You know, mm. I don't know how much more money you want to pay Lonnie Chisenhall to be a platoon outfielder. I'm not right. saying you don't. I mean, they could all have seasons that make you, at this point next year, say $7 million for Lonnie Chisenhall? That's a deal. I'll pay it. You know, I mean... I think it's just interesting. A lot of these guys that we've been tracking for years, they're getting to the end of those arbitration processes and they're kind of getting expensive. And Cleveland hasn't signed them to extensions. You know, they've been pretty clear, you know, by the people they've gone after who they value the most. And these guys are kind of left without a dance partner. <laughs> well, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, that the only. I guess relief pitcher they have sort of long term and it's not long term by any drastic measure is Andrew Miller if they traded for. Right. But I, I mean I think the Indians have made clear over the years they don't want to give long contracts to relievers. I mean we've rehashed like, you know, different ones uh over the years. Joe Smith, you know, I mean when Joe Smith left it was three years, fifteen million. Not completely unreasonable for a 
a lockdown, you know, eighth inning guy, but they had like no thoughts of ever signing that contract. They could not, <laughs> could not get him out of there fast enough. Yeah, they were like, no, thank you. Three years of a reliever? I don't think so. Goodbye. You know? Uh, so, just thoughts. <laughs> Before we uh, transition on to uh, the Pirates here soon, I did want to cu- cu- cover sorry, a couple few injury updates. Uh, recently, it was reported that Michael Brantley has begun hitting off a tee, and the club remains hopeful for a healthy Brantley in time for spring training, although I assume that the approach will be very cautious still concerning the setback that he had last year. I know we talked Dang, about this I, last time, but the, man, the, the whole Michael Brantley narrative just feels more and more like Grady size. I'm staring at a Grady size more bobblehead while I say this, but it's oh. looking more and more like Grady size more by the day. Does anyone else feel like that? Or is it just me? I tried I'm to, trying to ignore it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if it was just me that has these Im- impending feelings of doom just constantly looming over them about Michael Brantley. But, you know, I was super positive about Michael Brantley going into to last season, and everybody was talking about how great his progress was. And then it seemed like, you know, he came, he, like, he came back super early from from this, this injury Shorter. that he'd recovered from, and... And then you started to see the setbacks hit, and they just they never really stopped. Um, I don't know. That's and so that's kind of my feel is that it, you you got the same the same feeling watching Grady Sizemore's career kind of conclude. Um, I, I hope it's not like I hope it's I hope his star burns brighter than and for longer than Grady Sizemore's, but it's got that feeling to it. I got a little knot in my stomach every time we talk about him. Yeah, and Brantley will lead to much further discussion as the year goes on, especially in the spring, when it comes to outfield options in Cleveland, given, you know, what his health will be, I guess, more or less. Right. Yeah. But uh, the last two guys for injury updates, and they both appear to be on track for a, a healthy spring training, include Danny Salazar and Jan Gomes. So we'll be able to watch them on their progress. But I also want to add in that Jan Gomes, he wore number 10, but as a concession to the incoming Edwin Encarnacion, he basically said, uh, hey, Edwin, I have your number. What would you give me for it? <laughs> and Edwin more or less said, don't worry, Yanni, I'll take care of you. So Jan Gomes now has changed his number to a familiar one, number seven. Yeah. So that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. We'll see what what Edwin does to make good on that at spring training, I guess. Oh, yeah. What what a great piece of property to have that number ten. Man. <laughs> Talk about expensive real estate. It's funny, <laughs> you know, because the the number thing there is just a, it's steeped in tradition. Uh, when I was coaching with you guys uh, at a high school local high school team, uh, number forty eight's been my number for ever uh and you know I, I have real connection to that number i like that number and just so happened that our high school squad had a number 48 uh which was already taken by one of the players and uh i worked the negotiating process to, <laughs> to the best of my abilities i feel like i'm a pretty shrewd negotiator and uh i was able to uh, weasel away the number 48 from uh one of our lefty starters pops for uh t- two dozen two dozen crispy cream donuts I think it was, is what the, the final tally came to. So, yeah, Pop's, uh, Pop's got a he, – he put on some pounds uh, from the Krispy Kreme donuts, and uh, I got my number 48. So I, I don't think – I don't think Edwin's going to be dealing in donuts. Just for I don't think of, so. For the sake of posterity. The, there are some parallels to that story, but the, the payout, I think, is not one of those uh, parallels to that story. So <laughs> – What's the chances that Jan Gomes will have to change numbers again if the Indians decide to retire Lofton's number? <laughs> I kind of thought the same thing when I read the story. Is I don't know if that was the best choice, Jan. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jan's under contract through 2019 before he has a pair of club options. So it's conceivable that the Indians would do that. It's also conceivable, right, that they'd let him finish with That's it. That's what I was to say. Right. I think yeah. you'd probably get the, the Mariana Rivera treatment. Um, 
yeah. and get grandfathered in. You are now the last Cleveland Indian to wear number seven. Yep. But I also I mean, think it's possible that that number seven could be standing at first base before too long. Uh, Ooh. No one knows what to say about that. Yeah, I'm not. That's it, that took yeah. us in a direction I was totally unprepared uh, to handle with that discussion. I'm going to have to take some time and, and process that, and then we'll have to discuss <laughs> the possible ramifications of uh, that comment. Uh, we'll have some time to look at some statistics. Because I'm not. The, the worst podcasting ever is when I'm spending time looking up numbers, so. Um, that's for a future debate down the road. Yeah, that'll. Yeah, that'll, just just think about that. I'm I'm already pulling up an agenda for the next time that we record, <laughs> and that'll be number one for you guys. So you're gonna you better you better bring some heat next time, Jason, to back that up. Um, oh, I got I got all the heat I need. He's in the minor leagues. You got. Some, oh yeah. Got some heat. He's raking. Uh, so. Is that is that it? Are we done with Cleveland? Anything else we need to talk about? I think so. I think we're pretty good. Okay. Yeah, I so, Bob's got it under control. <laughs> Bob's got that on lockdown. So let's talk. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the Pirates a little bit. Much quieter offseason in Pittsburgh. No uh, big sexy signings, uh, at least with the caliber of Edwin Encarnacion. Oh come on! Somebody. Come on, Nova. All right. You, you want to start off with Nova? Let's start off. Let's get on the Nova train. Um, just really quickly, I'm. I'd just like to hear your initial thoughts. Uh, Jason, we'll start with you. The Yvonne Nova deal, are you, are you familiar with it? Would you like quick refresher on Three that? years, 24 million? 26, yeah. 26 million? Initial thoughts when you heard those numbers? Not unreasonable for someone that can throw the ball over the plate 60 feet, 6 inches away. <laughs> All right, Bob, three years, I 20, mean, 26 million. What were your initial thoughts? I agree. I think if he <clears throat> can repeat his success last year, it's a... A bargain. I mean, he was asking for four and fifty-six. It was rumored, I think, or five and sixty-something. I thought he was going to at least. I think on the last podcast he hadn't signed yet, so I, I said I thought he was going to get at least Liriano money. Um, three at twenty-six. I felt great about that. Um, I think what you saw is the start of the pitching market kind of correcting itself because. Things had been a little wild the last couple off seasons as far as, you know, guys like Max Scherzer and, um, you know, signing $200 million contracts and everybody's getting these dollar signs in their eyes when when these gunslingers are hitting the open market. Um, so Ivan Nova seemed like a guy in a really weak pitching class primed to make much more than $26 million over three years. Um, he did say to the Pirates' credit that a big reason that he was coming back to Pittsburgh was because he felt comfortable there for the first time really in his career. Um, and I'm sure that he, right. he probably, that has something to do with his uh, three and one record at PNC park with a 2.45 ERA. Um, and he, here's the stat that really completely blew my mind. Um, only walked two batters in 40 in the third innings. Um, so I think when you look at that, I, Ivanova looks like just the next pitcher in the line of AJ Burnett, Francisco Liriano, and now we have, you know, Ivan Nova. That's my two cents on the signing. I think it's a you great signing. Add... I think it's an undermarket signing. It's good for Pittsburgh. Sorry to cut you off there, Bob. You can go ahead and I was gonna gonna add Edison Volquez in that list there too. Yeah. Oh yeah, you could totally throw Vol- I mean Volquez was super effective in his time in Pittsburgh. Well, not super effective, but better than average um, during his time in Pittsburgh, certainly. Um, so, yeah, it's not the Edwin Encarnacion signing, but uh, I, I think it's a pretty, pretty big landing for Pittsburgh, definitely. I I had seen that, like, $50 million number, and then, you know, like a week later or something, I saw just the headline, Pirates signed Nova, and I was like, huh? <laughs> not for $50 million. Like, what? And then I read the amount, and it was kind of like, oh, well, you know. You need somebody to fill in some spots while you get your Italians and Glasnows and Coles and and whatnot up to up to speed, you know. Right. So, um, you know, he he has these flashes of of dominance, which Uncle Ray certainly can help bring out. So, why not? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a uh, yeah, 
great, great signing at a great value. Um, you know, Pittsburgh clearly has a type of pitcher that they like to go after. They like to go after the control guys, the guys that can uh, keep the ball on the ground so it's put in play that their defense can um, that their defense can kind of help boost their production. And I think Nova's <laughs> going to fit into that well. Um, so continuing on with kind of the positive vibe to start off this Pittsburgh Pirates segment, the Pirates have the, according to Keith Law of ESPN, fourth best ranked farm system in all of baseball. Now, this is nothing new for the last, what are we, in 2017? So last, you know, four years, really, we've been talking about Pittsburgh having a, a pretty amazing farm system. But the thing I think is kind of neat now is that we're looking at players that are graduating from the Pirates farm system and being promoted to the major league roster. And now, even after seeing some of these guys come up, we're looking at Pittsburgh still maintaining that success on the farm system. I think it's a testament to Neil Huntington and his ability to um, effectively utilize the limited resources that he has provided with in his job. So I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. I mean, you guys, you know, the Indians had a great farm system pretty much up until last season when they, they sold it to get Andrew Miller. So you know what the farm system game's like when you're playing with the smaller mid-market teams. Um, it's fun to dream on stuff, but, I mean, would I trade a Clint Frazier for an Andrew Miller down the down the stretch? It might be nice to make a push like that. <laughs> I guess we have, to be well, in that, <laughs> we have to be in that position to make that move again. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, you know? It's like the farm system is a asset. And just like any other asset, it can be turned into lots of different resources, right? Like it might turn into Garrett Cole and six years of above average pitching at below market rates, or maybe it turns Austin Meadows and Tyler Glasnow and whoever else into uh, John Carlo. I mean, we have no, you know what I mean? Like we don't know. Right. But as long as it's managed properly, uh, what can be bad about having a f- good farm system, right? I mean, you just don't want to be like the uh, Jack Zarednik of, <laughs> <laughs> of farm systems, right? Where you sell like, you know, a bag of bones for Shin Su Chu and then a bag of bones for Ezreal Cabrera and then a bag of balls for <laughs> somebody else. And then, you know, that's not what you want. But I don't think the Pirates have had that problem if anything, right, maybe they haven't pulled the trigger. Yeah, they've been probably a little too conservative, some would some would argue when they, they Which is like one of those ar- It's one of those arguments that you can't ever win either side, right? I mean, even with Andrew Miller and Clint Frazier. Like you you don't have the postseason you have without Andrew Miller. Uh you don't know what Clint Frazier's gonna be. Even if he's, even if he's Mike Trout, what have the Angels done with Mike Trout? Yeah, exactly. And so you saw what you you saw the impact that Andrew Miller could have on a team. Uh, and Cleveland, I don't think, is in the same position that they are uh, at the end of the season in the World Series without Andrew Miller. So yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, you know, you can do all the mental gymnastics you want about how much do we hoard <laughs> and how much do we trade, which is pretty much what we do all season long. Exactly. Um, yeah, but, it, you know, it's like you said, they're assets. It, what it comes down to is value. How much value can I extract that impacts this team right now when I need it relative to how much production and value you'll have for six years when we finally call you up to the Major League roster? I mean, it's going to sting if Clint Frazier comes up and hits 40 home runs for the Yankees, you know, a couple years down the road. But would it sting any worse than if, you know, Cleveland doesn't make it to the World Series and loses in the ALCS? I don't know. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's it's just, that's all it is, just mental gymnastics. That's all it is. Yeah, that's so, all it is. So, flag, yeah, I don't know. I'd, forever. Yeah, the, the farm system being great is, again, it's a testament to what Neil Huntington has built, I think. And I to me, that's what's, that's what he's been saying since the beginning. 
I suppose I have to give them credit for delivering a consistent message, which is we want to build a perennially competitive team, and that's what they've done. So in that so respect, in, that's good. With all that being said, now in the season, off season taking place, are your thoughts the same still about the Leonardo trade to Toronto, or do you have different opinion <laughs> now? You know what? Um... Because you still have a highly regarded farm system, but you also have payroll relief with that trade, too. It doesn't bother me as much because they did, I have to say, they did turn around and they signed Ivan Nova right away with that money. You know, they signed right. David Fries to an extension right away. So they did make good on that. So for all the, you know, because you're, you're going to have Yinzers that are going to say, oh, yeah, remember when they just traded Liriano for nothing? Uh, and to them, I'll say, well, I mean... They did, but they signed David Fries to a you know three-year extension, and they signed Ivan Nova for three years, and they weren't going to have the financial flexibility to do that with Liriano. Um, and at this point, after watching Liriano's mechanics just completely fall apart, <laughs> would I rather have Ivan Nova than Francisco Liriano? Yeah. I So, I mean, the trade in principle bothered me because you don't have the luxury of foresight as a fan at the time. And all you have to go on is, you know, the word of a general manager who works for a, I would say, less than passionate owner <laughs> about the success of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, but, yeah, so I, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I'm okay with it because they did what they said they were going to do, which is turn around and reinvest that money. So, yeah. Now, can, can we continue on the positive news train? Because I am, I'm feeling really good about the Pirates right now. Because it's winter and... We have all this next season to, to think about. Uh, Svelte Josh Bell reporting to winter workouts, guys. He's doing yoga. Shed 25 pounds. Down from like 250. He's like down in the 220s now. I think this is gonna be uh, this is gonna be Josh Bell's breakout year. He's coming into camp in the best shape of his life, guys. Is this a kung fu panda analogy? <laughs> kung fu panda. Uh, I don't think a single player has reported to spring training yet, but we've already got one. We've got one who's in the best coming. shape of his life story. <laughs> we're already <laughs> – the Pirates were the first to report the best shape of his life story this this winter. Um, I mean, it's, it's always good to hear those stories, and you would probably much rather have the Josh Bell narrative as opposed to the Pablo Sandoval narrative where your belt is breaking <laughs> uh, in the middle of a game. So, yeah, in that respect, it's good. And I will say, as another testament to the Pirates, they do have a history of, you know, Andrew McCutcheon works out like a fiend during the winter. Um, you know, he has a history of inviting guys down to Florida to work out with them. And um, So I, I, it's always nice to hear those stories, just because it's nice to see that these guys that are making so much money are uh, grounded enough to understand that, that they need to, to keep themselves in shape. Um but yeah, I mean, they're professional athletes, so it's not something I really worry a whole lot about, I guess. Um, but yeah, just, it's uh, it's nice to see, I guess. Now, getting on some more touchy subjects, I suppose. Garrett Cole uh, and the Pittsburgh Pirates agreed to a contract, so this didn't have to go to arbitration, which was nice, considering that there was almost a uh, Garrett Cole gate last year. <laughs> And the Pirates offered him a $10,000 raise, and and everyone was worried that he might withhold his service. Um, so Garrett Cole has made a significant raise, uh, six times the amount of money that he was making last year when he was making 541000 He agreed to a contract with the Pirates for $3.75 million. So they took care of all their arbitration. They did a really good job uh, with everybody except for Tony Watson, um, who is apparently drawing his line in the sand. Uh, as as well are the Pirates, because Tony Watson was asking for $6 million. The Pirates offered 5.6, and we are going off to arbitration with this gentleman over $400,000. Always a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So, uh... Don't the Pirates have that in the couch cushions up in the executive suite somewhere? Bob Nutting might have that in his couch cushions. <laughs> Uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates as a franchise do not. So. Well, that's what I mean. Bob Nutting. So, you know, the owner. 
So nothing definitely does. Do the pirates? No. Nope, definitely don't. It it was it's interesting to me to see that this is where both sides like four hundred thousand dollars seems like an amount of money that you're going to be able to iron out. Um I think it's pretty clear that the you know the way that Pittsburgh treats their relief pitchers, you know, you saw Mark Melanson who's been you know, arguably the, the best relief pitcher uh for the Pirates in the last ten years. Uh you know, just just traded away in a losing season. So, I mean, I don't think anyone's getting too overly attached to Tony Watson, but I don't know. The arbitration stuff always interests me as a uh, as a pro union guy. I don't know, Bob. Thoughts on that? No, I think it fascinates me as well. I'm always curious though. You, you hear every now and then, <clears throat> especially recently, a couple a couple teams. I forget who they were, as reported by MLB trade rumors. That uh, was it called. Uh, File and stash approach. There's no real negotiating the middle ground. They just go ahead and they file their figure as a team, and then the player, and they say, all right, well, if we hit it, we hit it. If not, let's go to arbitration. Yeah, and... <laughs> I guess like playing with fire, though. I, I would not approach it that way myself, but... I mean, it's definitely a good way to damage a relationship. Oh, God, yeah. But the $400,000, that's the part that I really can't get over, I guess, when... I can't get over it on either side, really. Like, to me, that just seems like such... When you're talking about the millions and millions of dollars that you're going to make. Um, but, I don't know. Tony Watson's camp probably has a pretty good idea that they're not going to be in Pittsburgh after this year. So I'm sure he's probably not too concerned about the impression that he leaves on the club. And I'm sure the club looks at everything like a business, so they've probably made their statistical case, and he's made his, and off to arbitration they go. It's... And then here you are. If you just convinced them to have one more bobblehead night, it'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Should have had Tony Watson bobblehead night last year. So that'll be something to keep an eye on. That's really, like I said, they reached agreements with, with all their other arbitration-eligible players, Jordy Mercer, Juan Nicasio, Drew Hutchinson, and uh, Hutchison, sorry, and Jared Hughes. So took care of everybody else in house. So nice job with that, Pittsburgh. A um, couple of things I want to talk about before we wrap up today. Uh, Tyson Ross, who is a uh, man, just a passion project of mine. Tyson Ross has been on my radar as a Pittsburgh Pirates starting pitcher target for three years, going on now. <laughs> Like, I think Tyson Ross is, like, the kind of player that, that Pittsburgh should have acquired a long time ago. Um, well, they had the opportunity to do that because he had um, shoulder problems, th specifically thoracic outlet syndrome, which I think is the second time I've seen that. Uh, who's the other player that had that recently? Uh, Matt Harvey from the Mets. Yeah, Matt Harvey. Uh, was, yeah, that was who I was thinking of, <clears throat> Matt Harvey. So yeah. Matt Harvey had thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, too. And Sean um, Markham had it, too, of the uh, – Indians, Brewers. That's background. right, yeah, because when Markham came back from that, that was when he signed with Cleveland, didn't he? Yes. Yep. So, yeah, Ross coming off the thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, uh, the Padres just kind of cut ties with him, which was interesting because I think he had, what, two years left of control? I think he had this year and then next year left under team control, and the Padres just apparently felt not good enough about him as a pitcher to just let him go. So he was in the mix with Pittsburgh. It had been reported um, from numerous sources that the Pirates had been in contact with him. Ultimately, Ross decided to sign with the Rangers for one year and $6 million, which, man, when I saw that, <laughs> I just I felt like Pittsburgh has missed an opportunity. It wasn't that much money. It's a one-year deal. Um, from everything I've read, it does sound like, though, the the one of the reasons that he's going to be so cheap is because they're not pushing him back to be ready for opening day. He's kind of waiting to position himself to be 100% healthy before he comes back to pitch. Um, hope Presumably to springboard himself into a, a better deal after this year. So he's kind of taking this $6 million pillow contract and um, – presumably trying to springboard off a, a strong performance to finish the year in Texas. Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> I, I always think of Pittsburgh as that pitching haven where you kind of want those 
fringy guys, those Lirianos, those Burnett's to come in. And Tyson Ross seems like that kind of pitcher where, man, you're just you're just something short of greatness. You know, it's you watch him pitch and he has that wipeout slider. But, yeah, ultimately just wasn't uh, – Pittsburgh was not an attractive enough destination for him for whatever reason. Or maybe he they looked at his medicals, decided he wasn't going to be a good fit in Pittsburgh. Um, either way, I guess we'll kind of see as the season progresses how he recovers from the thoracic outlet syndrome surgery. But I don't know, Bob. You're a you're a pitching guy. I think Pittsburgh kind of missed out on uh, on requ- on acquiring a guy who has some upside to him. Thoughts? Oh, I agree <clears throat> with that exactly. But doesn't didn't he also have another problem though last year too that was unrelated to this injury? Yeah, I, I want to say he was, yeah, he was nicked up before he got to the thoracic outlet. Yeah. It's one of those things to me, like, he's still young, he's got great talent, he'd be a perfect fit in Pittsburgh. I just worry, is it almost too much like when the Padres, ironic that it is, signed Josh Johnson to like a one-year, $5 million deal, and I'm thinking, wow, what a awesome signee, he'd be bounces back at all, it'd be a great pick for them, and then he really never did bounce back. Yeah, actually, I think Josh Johnson just retired, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, I think he's, like, officially done with baseball. But, so, I mean, the injuries are, obviously, you can't ever predict how someone's going to recover from injuries. If he comes back and he is still the same caliber of pitcher that he was, Texas got an amazing deal. And he probably won't be nearly as cheap coming off of this one-year $6 million deal, but... Um, I'm looking forward to watching Ross. He's a player I always kind of keep an eye on um, because he has those interesting interesting statistical numbers, uh, to be certain. Uh, he loves the slider. <laughs> oh, man, that slider is just nasty. <laughs> nasty. Um, last thing I want to touch on before we wrap up today, something for Pirates fans to keep a close eye on. And I brought this up, uh, was that last year, when the Marlins – um, I think they ultimately ended up having to trade a player to Pittsburgh uh, for their front office staff, uh, staff member Jim Benedict, um, who went to the Marlins and turned his career into a position called the Vice President of Pitching Development, which I have never heard of uh, prior to that, but that is Jim Benedict's job. Um, so he was kind of known around Pittsburgh as the pitching guru, the guy who was working at all levels, you know, working with all pitchers, identifying um, players to bring in that they think could could be the reclamation projects. And presumably, I'm assuming that's what he's doing in Miami with a little more authority maybe, um, since I'm, I'm guessing it's not a lateral move. But keep an eye on that Pittsburgh Pirates front office because, you know, Jim Benedict, the, the Marlins, uh, snatched away from the Pirates. And this offseason, the Arizona Diamondbacks, which are, Bob, I think we can agree – probably the biggest train wreck of a franchise in baseball right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they burnt their farm system literally to the ground uh, t- and made their team worse. And, I mean, the only real value they have on their team, you know, they have Pollock who's coming back off an injury. They have Paul Goldschmidt, Goldschmidt. who's really yeah. probably the target if you're <laughs> – if you're Arizona and you need to try and figure out how to rebuild faster than like a five-year time frame, Goldschmidt's going to be the guy that you're going to trade. Um, but the Diamondbacks made a, a good front office move, hiring Mike Fitzgerald away from the Pirates to be their director of analytics. Um, he was with Pittsburgh, uh, Mike Fitzgerald, the Pirates' quantitative analysis. And if you have read the book uh, Big Data Baseball by uh, former uh, Pittsburgh Trib beat writer Travis Sochik, who's now of Fangraphs. Um, he was featured prominently in that book as one of the first guys around baseball, one of the first stat guys around baseball, to travel with the Pirates on the road um, to kind of give his analysis uh, You know, while the team was, was away from PNC Park. So, very smart guy. Uh, I, I think this loss will end up being a, a pretty significant one in the Pirates' front office. Um, so, something to, to, to keep an eye on. I mean, I don't think there's any shortage of people that want to work in baseball, but um, when you have guys that are innovative like that and that are working around the, the fringes of baseball, finding those, um, finding those competitive edges, 
uh, analytically, there it's it has to be tough to replace. So he's going to be again. I, I'm assuming not making a lateral move going to Arizona, so he's probably going to be having uh, another uh, a, a larger impact on the team, let's say, than than he was having as a, just an, an analyst for the Pirates. Um, Pittsburgh's kind of getting like the Cleveland Indians general manager tree. We're getting like that with our our analytical yeah. front office, where you're starting to see, oh, this guy was working for the Pirates and now he's over here. Um, so it's interesting. It's uh, I. Again, you can't quantify like you can with, you know, war and player production, how much a, a front office staff member impacts a team. But, um, you know, if Jim Benedict was there, would Pittsburgh have played around with Juan Nicasio? Who's to say? You know? You know what I mean? Like, it's just that <laughs> kind of stuff that you... Again, it's all the mental gymnastics that you can do uh, to, to play those hypotheticals through your head. But... Um, It'll it'll be interesting to see how Pittsburgh changes uh, as a as a statistically minded team um, without Mike Fitzgerald in their front office, to be sure. And I think that's it for Pittsburgh. Anything else you want to touch on with the Pirates there, Red? No, I can't think of anything. Um, oh, I guess it's worth noting um, Cole Figueroa, who started the season in Pittsburgh last year and is a bit oh, yeah. of a a uh, statistical darling himself. He he kind of made a nice little niche for himself as a uh, as a guy who could uh, provide teams value in a bunch of creative ways. But Cole Figueroa, who's not very – he can't – he's maybe 30. I don't know how old he is. I have to Google it and see. But Cole Figueroa's taken a position as a development assistant with the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, so he spent time with the Pirates at the beginning of the year last year. as kind of that super utility guy coming off the bench, and then he played with the Marlins and Dodgers – um, and so it seems like his playing career is over, but he's talked on several different podcasts. Um, you know, he's talked on, uh, effectively wild numerous times about how he is very analytically driven and, uh, and an analytical thinker as far as baseball goes. And, um, he seems like the kind of guy that a team would want to target if you're trying to figure out how to communicate clearly to your team how statistically driven you're being because he is a player. You know, he has that unique uh, perspective of a guy who's stood on the diamond playing the game and now a guy who's telling you this is how we can help you to play better. So I, I'm really excited for Cole Figueroa and kind of this this next chapter in his career. It'll be definitely something I think that's that's worth keeping an eye on if you're a fan of baseball and statistics for sure as well. So yeah, I think that's gonna wrap it up for the Pirates now. So nothing else, nothing else you want to add on the uh, Pirates bandwagon there, Bob? Nope, let's keep it all positive. Yeah, that was good. I I feel pretty good about this, <laughs> relatively speaking. We uh, <laughs> we came out of this discussion unscathed, so that's nice. Well, that's gonna wrap us up for today. We'd like to again thank our listeners and ask if you're listening to us on iTunes that you give us a rate and review. Uh, we're recording sporadically as often as our uh, children and busy lives allow. So keep your ears to the ground for our next podcast. But in the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.tsmbaseball.com. You can email us, tristatebb at tsmbaseball.com. You can follow us on the Twitter at tristatebb. And you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash tsmbaseball. So for Bob Finkbeiner and Jason Ruggiero, this is Andy Burdick, and we look forward to talking to you soon.